I might have to get a bigger stand sometime. <clears throat> Good morning again, everyone. Now, um, for the benefit of those listening online, um, please will you go to your mobile phones, or you who are here can look on the PowerPoint. And at www.simplygod.net, uh, you will find a full outline and the passage for you of what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to read it. It is Psalm 8, for those of you who still have squashed trees. Psalm 8, I'm gonna, which is me, by the way. Uh, Psalm 8, I'm going to read it, then I'll pray, and we'll think about this together. But first I'm going to cough. <coughs> there, done. Listen to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to silence or still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Lord, help us to understand these words. Uh, we ask the Holy Spirit to speak clearly this morning. We've come here thinking you're okay. We'd like to leave here like David, going, How majestic you are. Reveal yourself, we pray. Amen. Well, our series is called The Glory of Jesus Before He Entered Our World. And this is our series leading right up to Christmas Eve. And today we're on number four. And our, our, this morning's talk is The Majesty of Our Brother Who Rules Everything. The Majesty of Our Brother Who Rules Everything. So look with me again at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Who here hasn't had that experience? So here's a dude, and he's sitting under the skies, like Bear grills, you know, he's out in the wild, and he's looking at the stars, and he's just blown away, because it's so vast, and as he will go on to say, what is man? He's overcome by the bigness of everything and the littleness of himself. Like, everything's so big, and I'm so small. Whoa. You know one of those moments? 
And the reason, the only reason I have to ask you, have you had a moment like that, is because the world has changed. This guy, his name's David. David, there was a time where people lived like that. You, everywhere you went, it was like, oh, whoa. You know, look, oh, God, you're amazing. That's how people lived. Now, well, we live in a city. So you don't get to see what God has made all the time, especially if you're in a big, like the Big Apple, like Perth, you know. Uh, you don't get to see what God has made. On the contrary, you're surrounded by what people have made. And if you're surrounded by what people have made, guess what? You won't think God's so awesome because you don't get to see what God has made. I mean, picture living in a big city. Someone who's never seen the stars. How would they think God is big? Obviously. And so I have to begin this talk this morning by reminding you what's out there. And this morning I want to say another apology quickly. Man does not mean male. Often in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, man is a Hebrew word meaning human being. It doesn't always mean male. Our society is very gender sensitive and that, that's fine. But uh, throughout this talk I'm going to be talking about man because uh, maybe I'll remember to say woman but it's shorter to. The point is it's about people, human beings. Okay, let's look at verse 3 again. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've put in. What am I? What is I get humbled, David is saying. I'm so humble when I just see your majesty. I wrote in the 500 words, if you subscribe to them, you'll never, I'll never have to say this because you would have got it sent to you. But in the 500 words, I wrote a thing on psychology telling us that the feeling of being in awe of something is actually good for a human being. Did you know that? It's actually really good for you. But, you know, it's all there for you. So let me give you my verse 3, because I'm sure you've got a verse 3. Okay? I've got a verse 3. Now, forgive me, because boring, my children call these old man stories. So I, as you know, have sailed around the world. Once I was sailing between Namibia and Brazil, and halfway across, in the middle of the ocean, I had a verse 3 experience. I had a few, but this was a big one. What happens is, if you get becalmed in the middle of the abyss, now you are two weeks out to sea, so there's no airplanes and there's no ships, and there's very little dust off the continents. The water is clean like, like you know, you think Rado is clean. This is cleaner. And one night, I was on the helm, but we were becalmed, so there's no wind. It, it's a silence that actually you can feel. It's so quiet. The stars, unbelievable. But here's the difference. Because you're out there, the stars are 365 degrees around you. And more, you can't see where the water starts and the stars begin. Because the water is so clean, they're reflecting off the stars. And quite honestly, and by then I had stopped doing some 
extracurricular chemicals that I was up to that point. But anyway, I was in my same mind. And as I looked around, you start to lose. You, you, it's like you lean out because you think you can touch them because you lose perspective. It's, it is phenomenal. Now, I know you've had a, gone to Exmouth or something, you've had a, but for me, that was my verse 3 moment. And what happened was what the Bible says is true. I didn't say, yeah, I am huge, I'm amazing. What the Bible says is true. I suddenly went, yay big. And it's all so big. And I'm so small. And that's what verse 3 is about. And David, the, the writer of the psalm, he's having, he's not on a yacht, he's in the desert. And he's having a moment. His soul is engrossed. And as he looks up, he just goes, it is majestic. It is majestic. And that's the first thing we're going to see this morning. God's majesty is over the whole of creation. God's majesty is seen in creation. Look at verse 1. Look at what David says. Oh Lord, by the way, you know, I wasn't even a Christian really at that point. I was becoming one. But I remember, I'm way off the point now. I remember looking up and saying, well, Whoever did this, I'd like to know him. If someone did do this. But, but anyway, look what David says. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David is saying, wherever I look, I see your majestic glory everywhere. So some of you are sitting there and going, well, that's why I'm not a Christian, because I haven't sailed to Brazil, you know. Well, no, because you can see it everywhere. Yes, it's especially in the cosmos. And I want to keep it short because we've got communion today. But I've got quotes from astronomers. These are pros who work in astronomy, who are still blown away by the spiral Andromeda Nebula. You, why they don't just call it? But anyway, you know. Even experienced astronomers are blown away by what they see out there. But don't worry, because it's everywhere. It's down here too. So when I was writing this, outside my window is, and some of you will be grossed out by this, is a golden orb. It's a spider. And this golden orb outside my window has spun, as I was, and the sun was coming up, because I'm an early writer. And the sun was shining through his web, and it was golden. The patterns, the, it was astonishing. If, if you have eyes to see, you'd go, whoa, it's everywhere. God has just got little droplets of his majesty everywhere. But Dwayne, why doesn't everyone see it if this is true? Well, obviously, the fault is with them. They don't see properly. Because the golden orb is still there. In other words, the problem is with us. It's not without there. Our raging hearts blind us to the majesty of God. We become blind. Not here, but here. I could prove this to you so easily. So you're uh, uh, with your partner 
and you've got a beautiful garden outside and you walk out into your garden with your little cup of coffee and you're like, oh, this is so cool. And you're loving it. Have a fight with your partner. Walk out into your garden and you won't see anything beautiful. Because your heart is, you know, and uh, you go break a rose just to get back at her because you're scared of her or whatever, you know. In other words, it's our hearts that blind us to what is real. But the garden hasn't changed. You've changed. You know what we've done? We've created a different world, the internet, the online universe. The, let's call it, wait, I've come up with a new word, metaverse. I just invented that. But you know what I'm saying. And what are you doing? Well, you've lost sight of God's majesty. And so you chase man and his majesty. I ain't going to be pretty. There's something amazing about God's majesty. Now, if you think you don't have eyes to see point one, you really won't get point two. Here's the second thing we see. God's majesty is seen, not just in creation, God's majesty is seen in God silencing the enemy through weakness. Now this one most folks won't get because this is not how people think. The world, even if the world sees this, it doesn't accept it. Look closely at verse 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Watch this. Now David is going, God, you're amazing. Look what David says in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still or silence the enemy and the avenger. What is David saying? He's saying, God, your majesty can be seen in the fact that you defeat the enemy through weakness. That's the logic. How big does God... See, if your God is small, what do you have to do? You have to kill people. The smaller your God, the more you'll have to fight for your God. You'll have to uh, try and take down... The government will have to, well, I'm not going to go there. But the bigger your God is, the less you have to fight. He can look after himself. And the biblical God is so big that he works through weakness. The logic is easy. Who can't kill someone with a gun? You don't have to be big and strong to use a gun. That's why if you look at UFC, which I don't like, or if you look at boxing, which I don't mind, but I don't love either of them, if you look at it, you know what they have? They've got a thing called weight divisions. You can only fight against someone of your weight. Because otherwise, well, where's the glory in beating up someone who's half your size? That doesn't make you very strong, does it? And if the keyboard warrior, the uber geek, 60 kilograms, gets into a UFC cage fight and does beat up the heavyweight champion of the world, how much glory? Do you think that geek is going to win? That's why we all like an underdog. Why do you like an underdog? Because there's more glory in an underdog winning than the hot favorite, right? That's the logic. God has chosen to display his glory, defeating his enemy through weakness. 
And this is the message of the whole Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When man gave up on God and gave the authority and rule of this planet to Satan, God came along. And other than judgment, here's what God said. Out of the woman will be born a child. And that child will crush the serpent's head. Look what God did. God didn't say, oh, you guys have made such a mess. This calls for my strongest angel. No, no, wait, I'll nuke them. No, God said I will win through weakness. That's why Christians don't despise childbirth or child rearing. On the contrary, we think it's the most beautiful thing. Because through weakness, God establishes glory. It's not just in Genesis chapter 3, it goes the whole way through the Bible, but here is David. David's a prime example. David is a runt. He's the runt of the litter. He's got seven brothers, or six. Is he the seventh? Can't remember, but there you go. It's a big crowd. He's got all these brothers, bigger, stronger, better, so much so that they get invited to a feast. He gets left behind looking after the sheep. He's called a runt. He's called ruddy, and, and this is so awkward. He's also got red hair. I mean, where does that fit in in the Middle East? But anyway, and so there is this little, and what does he become? The Lord is with him. He defeats Goliath with stones, and he becomes the ruler. There is God working through weakness. And even today, God chooses the weak thing. The things of no repute in the world's eyes. I don't want to offend you, but just look at you. You're not impressive, okay? It says he. Um, and nor am I. Do you know why? Because that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be ordinary. It's supposed to be average. The church doesn't stick out. Because God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's the principle that David is praising God for in verse 2. The church is meant to be unimpressed. Our message, our message is powerful. So powerful. But we, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And so the church is simple, ordinary, and yet, astonishingly, God accomplished his great things through ordinary. How do you spot a false church? It's elaborate. It's filled with gold. It's impressive. It's probably got its own bank or something. It's a, it owns money and land. You know, I, I can't believe what I read this week. I, I'm being careful if I should say names. Poor plumber working in a church which shall not be named and taking out a toilet that was loose and finds thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in envelopes stuffed behind the wall. You know, you can Google whose church that is. It's not in Perth. There's a sign of a false church. It's impressive. The true church is ordinary. The true church doesn't wear rockets on its head. It doesn't have gold. And the, they just look like Bruce next door. There's no titles. You don't call the man reverend. You don't call him pope. 
He called him by his silly name, Bob, or Dwayne, or whatever. And that leads on to number three. God's majesty is seen in God silencing the enemy through weak things. Thirdly, God's majesty, and this is even more surprising. I can't believe you were going to do it this way, God. God's majesty is established through the rule of man. Not male, man. Who is male and female. See, David is thinking, I can't believe you've made me king of everything. Because David by now has conquered everyone. But it's not just me. It's man. Look with me closely at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set him, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him lower than the heavenly beings. So God, if I was you, I would have picked one of them. But instead, no. You crowned man with glory and honor. I can't get over this. You've given man dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes, passes along the path of the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, this blows me away. How majestic is your name in all the... You talk about working through weakness, David's luck, and you're going to work through a man. I can't think of anything weaker. Well, let's play a game. So you're fast asleep in bed and you're holding Winnie the Pooh tight and suddenly you wake up and there's an alien and the alien says, biddy, 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 take me to your leader. Okay, well that's cool, you don't eat me, I'll take him to my leader. Who are you going to take him to? Oh, Jesus, well, then, yeah, you're preaching next week. <laughs> that was so prophetic. Who are you going to take him to? Oh, I know, you take him to a lion, obviously, because which man can fight a lion, right? So you take the alien to the lion, and he looks at you and goes, how can this be your leader? It's in a cage. Where do you get his food from? Oh, we feed him. Oh, wait, he's not the leader. Oh, oh well, uh, it must be a shark. Great what? I've never met a man who's not scared of a great what? That must be the leader. Oh, no, 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 no. We're still deciding whether we're going to let them live in Perth or not. We get to choose. Oh, oh, okay. So that's not your leader. No. Oh, you must be talking about an elephant. I have never met a man as strong as an elephant. You know that what he can do with his nose, what I can do with my nose is gross. But what an elephant can do with his nose is pick up things. That's astonishing. That must be your leader. Actually, no, we ride on top of them. What? Okay, then you're talking about the eagle. Clearly that's the ruler of this planet because he can fly. You can't fly. No. It's man. Weak. And he rules everything. How did that come about? How majestic is God's name? Now, who's tired? I'm going to give you five minutes to doze off because I'm going to indulge myself with some one of my favorite subjects, philosophy. And so some of you will want to switch off. But maybe you want to stay with me because I want to show you something. Look at verse 3. Think with me. One of the things Christians don't do anymore is think. God says, love me with your heart, strength, and 
with your mind. Think a little bit. Look at verse 3. Uh, not verse 3. Verse 4. What is man? What a profound question. What is man? Not male. Because who knows what a male is. Um, what is man? What is man? What answer will you give? The history of philosophy has struggled with this question. You think they're so clever. They have struggled with this question. What is a man? What is a human being? What are we? What are we? The history of philosophy will show you that only God can tell you. And I'm going to show it to you what a man is. Only God knows. I'll show it to you. Because, first of all, God puts us in our place. Look what he says. What is man? And then look what he says in verse 5. You have made him, I'm going to demonstrate this with my hands. You have made him lower than the angels, the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And you've put him above animals, verse 6, 7, and 8. Okay, everyone look. Angels up there, animals down here. God says, I have put you, man, bloops, in the middle. That basic fact, philosophers can't grasp. So the history of philosophy is a story of do we promote man up? Do we, is he God? Or do we lower man and make him an animal? And the history of philosophy is those two points of view. These guys contradict these guys. These guys contradict these guys. Because only God tells us where we fit in the middle. And I could bore you, so I'm going to. Plato, the greatest of all philosophers, what did he do? He elevated man. He said man is God. And when Plato said man is God, he did not mean female. He said males are divine. Within us is divinity. Our bodies are not important, but our minds are the ideal. And so Plato's thinker is a male. Women, where are you? You're an animal. That's what Plato said. Females are animals. And males are like God, you know? That's Plato. That leads to Gnosticism today. The Stoics were the other way around. The Stoics said everything is divine. Everything is divine. But the mind that a man has makes him the ruler of it all. So this is uh, Stoicism. If you ever want to understand Stoicism, if you ever watch YouTube, if you ever watch... Who's the most popular YouTuber in the world? Quickly. Tell me. It's gone out of my head. Who's the most popular YouTuber in the world? Someone tell me. Tell me, young people. Who? No. I'll think of his name just now. Come on, he's in Sweden. He's the most, like, more than 100 million people follow him. Well, that guy. It'll come to me now. So he's a Stoic. He's studying Stoicism and telling more than 100 million followers why it's a good idea. In Stoicism, it's about mind over matter. So everything is divine, but the human mind is like the brain of the world. And we rule it over, over it all. Epicureanism is the opposite. It's matter over mind. We're not divine. We're going down. We're atoms like your guinea pig at home. You, your banana, and your guinea pig are the same thing. It's just atoms. 
You might be cleverer, but that means nothing. We're just, there is no God. Uh, that's your modern atheists. I'm boring you. The history of philosophy is do we make man divine? Do we make him just an animal? It's not just philosophy, it's history. The enlightenment. Man is a God. We can fix planet Earth. We can bend nature. We can make factories. We can produce a Ford. Is anything better than a Ford? We can do anything. We are God. Optimistic. Us gods will make this planet heaven. Enlightenment. Then came World War I. Oh, we're not that great. World War II. We're bad. And we fell all the way to, you know what, there's no God. We're just animals. And you have the sexual revolution of the 60s, where we now live like animals. We've fallen. Now we go down. Do we go up? Do we go down? Well, I'll stop there. I wanted to tell you about Kant and all those guys, but I won't. Here's the point. We get to today and Gen Z. What has Gen Z done? They don't know who they are because their parents haven't got a clue. Are we this? Are we that? We don't even know what a gender is. And so we build our own fantasy world called Minecraft. Oh, whatever, whatever. Because in that world, I understand. In that world, it makes sense. The metaverse will be a happy place, unlike the real world, because I don't know what's going on there. Oh, you know those cyber bullies, they just wrote, well, well, we'll make legislation, we'll stop that, and then we'll have our perfect world. And all of this is because of verse 4. What is man? No one can tell us. Do you think I'm being too philosophical? Why don't you ask your neighbor next door, what is a human being for? School, put up your hands, ask your teacher. Why am I here? She can teach you everything except the most fundamental question. Oh, sorry, I don't know. I'm going to show you. Four things, they're all on your outline. We'll go very quick. This psalm tells us what we are. Number one, man is the outcome of God's mind. Look at verse four. What is man? That you are mindful of him. First, there is a mind. Then, there is a man. A man is the outcome of God's mind. Sitting in front of me is a very geeky man. He's an architect. I won't look now. He will tell you, before there is a building, there is a mind. He has an idea. I want windows there, and the engineers are sweating because he's going to make it complicated. That's what architects do. And I want a door there, and I'm, there's nothing there, but it's in his mind. Mind first, and then comes a building. Oh, pick a little birdie. We have really wagtails nesting in our garden. There is a nest. You don't get a nest and then a bird. First, the bird has a mind, very small, because he keeps picking my head, so it must be very small. And what he's going to do is then he builds the nest. Man is the outcome of God's mind. 
But what does that mean for us? Well, logically, it means you'll never know who you are until God tells you what's in his mind. God has a mind. God has an idea for you. Here you are. You'll never know what you are until he reveals his mind to you. Hey, hey, imagine if God's mind was revealed in words. Imagine if the word became like me, a man. Then I would know who I am. He has a great prayer for you. Write this down. Dear God, what were you thinking? That's a great prayer. You don't know who you are. God, what were you thinking? It's a great prayer. Or you don't know who you are. God, what did you have in mind? Great prayer. You'll never know who you are until God reveals his mind to you. Secondly, which he has done in the Bible. Secondly, Man is the object of God's care. Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Oh, this is so beautiful. It's not just that God has you in his mind. Because you know the word mindful means caring. This is Hebrew parallelism. But what God is saying is I care for you. I don't just make you and oh look I made a Lego man. Tomorrow I'll squish you. God is like, I care for you. What is man that you care for him? We're not just in God's mind, we're in God's heart. Do you know what it means to be lost? You know what it's really lost? It's when you don't know who you are, you don't know what your purpose is, and listen to this, and nobody cares for you which is the average teenager in Australia. And they lost. Might as well go smash a bus stop. So I don't know who I am. don't know what my point is. And you know what? No one cares. But the opposite is true. God made you. God has got it. And God cares. I better hurry up. Uh, number three, man is the recipient of God's honor. Look at verse five. Yet you made him lower than the heavenly beings, but you crowned him with glory and honor. It's an astonishing thing that God invests in a human being value. Everybody, he has a great question. But I've asked so many. But anyway, I'll ask you another one. What makes a human being valuable? Write that down. Ask your teacher tomorrow. Miss? What makes a human being valuable? I'd love to hear the answer. Because philosophy can't give you an answer. But here we told you're valuable because God has invested value in you. God has made you valuable. You drive over a cat. No one arrests you. You don't go to jail. You drive over a child. You're in big trouble. Why? There's another eight billion of them. What's your problem? Why? The only answer is because God gives you that. Take God out the picture and human beings are no longer valuable. Logically. The, who are the two human beings who killed more other people than anybody else? Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. They killed literally more than 10 million people. Both of them were atheists. There's no God. So of what value is people? 
Oh, Dwayne, now you see, that's an old trick you play against atheists, because Hitler was not an atheist. Yes, I know. False religion is just as dangerous as atheism. But the Bible says people have value. And lastly, man is the center. Oh, this is going to blow you away. Man is the center of God's purposes. Verse 6 to 9. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under her feet. All sheep, oxygen, oxygen. <laughs> That's a, anyway. <clears throat> and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever part of Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Remember we said God's majesty is displayed through weakness. Would you believe it? We have a purpose. Our purpose is to spread the majesty of God wherever we go. Have a look on your outlines. I put a verse there for you. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden, two words, to work it, and your translation probably says keep it or guard it, it's actually quite a technical word, here's the point, Eden was not heaven, otherwise what's the point of everything, why did we, I mean what's the point of everything, Eden is not heaven, the man and the woman had a job to do. They had to grow Eden. They had to make it spread over the earth so the glory of God is spread over the earth like the waters cover the sea. What was the devil doing in the garden? Why was he there? Were there no snakes? No, why was he there? He shouldn't have been there. That was failure number one. Because the man was meant to Keep the garden, guard the garden, work the garden, expand the garden, escalate the garden. And if he had done his job, heaven would have been the result. But he failed. He failed miserably. And it's not just him who failed. It's every man's sins. David, Solomon, me, you. Man is the outcome of God's mind. Man is the object of God's care. Man is crowned with honor and dignity. Man's purpose is to silence the enemy, still God's enemy. How amazing is a human being? Every time that little thing pops out, if you've had a baby, which I haven't, but I, you know, my wife has, when that little thing pops out, can you believe God can you believe it? That's not just an animal. God has got a project for this thing. Can you believe that? In fact, man is so amazing, I think we should call our church, what should we call her? I know, the humanist church. We'll worship man then. You know as well as I do. You can't see this. Do you know yesterday I was driving in Joondala, prestigious environment, upmarket, Wonderfully, or where all the good people live. And I saw a homeless person. There was a dude, big beard. You could smell him. 
obviously addicted to drugs or something, sleeping on a mat with his trolley of possessions next to him. Even an animal can look after itself. This guy can't. He can't even look after himself. Dwayne, where's your glory now? Dwayne, where's your, this man that's so amazing, what happened there then? The astonishing news is that we have failed. And so here's what happened. God sent another man. God sent another man. I look at myself and I think this can't be true. Dwayne, you're right. God sent another man. Everybody, look on your outlines. and We'll close with this. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, post, oh, post Jesus, is a commentary on Psalm 8. Look at what happens. Hebrews chapter 2, it is on your outline for you. I don't see this thing you're saying, Dwayne. Well, let me show you something else then. Hebrews chapter 2, from verse 5. Now, listen to what the writer says. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So the Jehovah Witnesses are wrong. Because they say Jesus is an angel. It's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. World to come is not just future. It's a technical phrase in Hebrews meaning the world that has begun. It means salvation. Of which we are speaking. That's why I know I'm right. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower, a little bit lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Everything is under man. Oh yeah, then why do I have cancer? At, look what he says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But, he has one of those beautiful big buts. But, we see who? Him. Who? Him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. Do you remember when I did this with my hands? Lower than the angels. More than animals. Where did Jesus fit? He entered there. Jesus took our place. He became one of us. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he... Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That doesn't mean Jesus was imperfect and he became perfect. It means he is a perfect savior because he's there. A lamb won't save us. You can sacrifice a million lambs. It won't help you. An angel can't help you. It's got to be one of us. Jesus became perfect. Now, I'm going to race through this, but verse 11, 12, and 13, I'm just saying one thing. He is our brother. He who sanctifies 
and those who are sanctified are all of one, which is a better translation. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. If you didn't get that, here's the point. Jesus is one of you. You can relate to Jesus. If Jesus was standing here, you could pinch him. Look at this. He's got skin and flesh like you. You can relate. He's a man. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. And here it comes. That through death he might destroy the enemy. The one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What are we saying? Here's what we're saying. What we couldn't do. What Adam couldn't do. What David couldn't do. Jesus did. And he did it through weakness. Which is what Psalm 8 told us. He entered our world. God became a man. Jesus is God with legs on. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. And then he went all the way down and died. And through, when Jesus hung on that cross, the ultimate picture of weakness, which is why the Romans thought it was impossible that he could be God. God hung on a cross. Because through weakness, he defeated the enemy. At the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. Satan is now, he's got nothing more to say. Our sin has been dealt with. And God forgives us because of the cross. And so now, well, he has the last thing. We see the man Jesus. What does this mean for me? Well, I find out who I am. I find my true identity in Jesus. I look at Jesus. That's who I am. And Dwayne wakes up in the morning and I go, oh, you're ugly, which is true. But then I go to my Bible. I look at Jesus and I go, ah, oh, that's who I am. The Spirit unites us to Jesus. We become one with him. How must I live? How must I live? What are the rules? What are the rules for today? No rules. Be who you are. I will live like Jesus because that's my identity. And so, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. We end up worshipping God in everything. Well, I know that was a lot. It's always too much. I know. One day I'll change. But in the meantime, let's all just have a moment's quiet. Think about that. And I'd love to take a question or two, and then we'll come to communion.